Hello, and welcome to Afternoonified, the podcast where, and I'm very sorry about this, but we have to talk about another royal penis. I'm Sarah. And I'm Emily. And I, I just... Sorry about the penis, and I'm not. I'm excited because this is our first planned two-part episode. It is. I've been threatening to do a Marie Antoinette episode since you started, probably. Uh, and turns out uh, I overdid it, and I wrote too many notes, and I read a book, and we're gonna we're gonna have to do this in two parts. I'm very sorry. No, actually, I'm not. I'm not sorry about anything. You know what? Stop apologizing, me. I found that the reason that my, like, I went too deep episodes end up not being two parts is because I get bored with actually writing the notes, so then I make them shorter. I mean, I'm not going to say that doesn't contribute here, in that, like, I got to, like, ten pages and I had been writing for, like, you know, six, seven hours. I was like, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. I have enough notes. It's going to be a two-parter. Of course, uh, the drawback to that is uh, I have to write uh, another episode in two weeks. That's fine. We'll do. I'll, I'll make up <laughs> for it with fucking weirdness in the episode after that. I'm very excited for that. I'm going to quickly list my sources here before I forget. Um, major primary source for this. Well, not primary in like the technical sense. Primary in that. <laughs> This is mostly where I got my information. Uh, Marie Antoinette, The Journey by Antonia Fraser. Um, you may recognize it as the book that the Sofia Coppola movie was based on. I actually off of. didn't know that movie was based on a book. I thought she was just kind of freewheeling it. Oh, no. Like, if you if you read the book and watch the movie, you can, like, pinpoint specific scenes in the movie that come, like, directly from the I book. I do love the movie, so I'm... I'm very excited. It's I I rewatched it last weekend um, as part of my research, and it's a it's a masterpiece. Honestly, I love it. I'm usually kind of on the fence about like Coppola's work because they can all of the the whole family can get up their own ass pretty easily, but uh, it <laughs> easily, holds up. Yeah. Yes, no, it's very good. Uh, also, some additional info from, of course, Wikipedia, Encyclopedia Britannica, Smithsonian Magazine, and The New Yorker. Ooh, The New Yorker. I know. Very fancy. This is a very sophisticated episode about very fancy people. And it people, started with a joke about a penis. Uh, who got their heads cut off. Yes. <laughs> well, oh boy. We'll get to the penis. Don't we worry. We always get to the penis. <laughs> All right. So, yes, we are talking about Marie Antoinette, the famous French queen. Uh, but she was actually born Maria Antonia Josepha Johanna on November 2nd, 1755. Uh, and her parents were Maria Theresa, the Holy Roman Empress and the sovereign of the Habsburg Dominions, which at the time was like Austria, Hungary, Croatia, Bohemia, now Czech Republic, Transylvania, now Romania, like, just like all of Central Europe. When I think Bohemian, I don't think of the Czech Republic, but I guess that is... Do you think of Moulin Rouge? Obviously. And then I think of Rent. <laughs> yes, that, that makes sense. I, I also had that same connection. But yeah, that was Czech Republic before it was the Czech Republic, essentially. So Maria Theresa, her mother, uh, and her uh, father was Francis I. He had been born the Duke of Lorraine, uh, and he became Holy Roman Emperor upon his marriage to Maria Theresa. Who's Lorraine? Lorraine <laughs> Bobbitt. No. <laughs> 
it's What's a place. Lorena, first of all. Actually, I never looked this up where Lorraine is supposed to be. Sounds like it's near France. Uh, Northeastern France. Yes. And yes, it is still in France. I wasn't quite sure if it was like one of those areas that like has been traded between the French and the German for so long that it's kind of both. Ah, yeah. But it is technically in France. You mean like Belgium? Yes. Uh, So Maria Antonia was an Archduchess of Austria at her birth, and she was the 15th child of 16, eventually, born to the couple. Uh, And she was the youngest daughter as well. Did all of them Uh, live? I mean, they're dead now. Most of them lived. So uh, they had 16 children total. The year after, she had a little brother called Maximilian Francis. (laughs) Um, Of those 16 children, 13 survived past infancy, which in the mid-18th century is a pretty impressive survival rate. They should be proud. Yeah, this also meant that Maria Teresa was basically constantly pregnant since she had gotten married in 1736. Oh, God! (laughs) More or less. But, like, she's old hat at it. Like, the story is that, like, basically as soon as it was practical, she was signing papers from her bed, like, after Marie Antoinette's birth. Like, she popped out this baby and was like, well, guess I'll do some paperwork. See, when people are like, oh, what a girl boss, and it's like... No, she just started a company where she makes, like, artisanal lattes. That is an actual girl boss. <laughs> she girl bossed so close to the sun <laughs> that I don't, I don't, I don't have a punchline for that joke. It was just a stupid Mimi setup. <laughs> so, of her 10 sisters, Maria Antonia was not the only one to share her mother's name. Uh, they were in order of birth. Maria Elizabeth, Maria Anna, Maria Carolina, Maria Christina. A second Maria Elizabeth, Maria Amalia, another Maria Carolina, Maria Johanna, Maria Maria, Maria Josepha, <laughs> and finally a third Maria Carolina. Jesus! Carolina. Uh, the, you can probably presume that like these were like girl children that had passed away and their name got reused. <laughs> like they yes. didn't have like multiple living siblings with that shared the same name. Well, but, uh, I, th- I think I've discussed this at some point prior but i did go to school with a family of yeah 12 or between 12 and 15 where all of the girls were named mary and all of the boys were named ah, like joseph or some other bullshit but yeah it's basically the same concept like i I wouldn't say like modern catholic families do that like obviously there are still some because you know one but like (laughs) well it was in the 90s so like yeah like mid-century catholics would like name all their daughters mary and just they would all go by their second names yeah that was essentially the same thing that was here happening here they were very devout very catholic uh being you know the leaders of the holy roman empire and all of that um, so, uh, the prefix of Maria had been established for all of the family's daughters since the days of Maria Antonia's great-grandfather. Christ! Horace intended to signify their veneration of the Virgin Mary. I think they covered it. Yep, mostly. <laughs> um, of course, like we mentioned, like, it's not always so confusing. Um, they, uh, eventually would refer to her by the name of Antoine. So, as she was growing up, she wasn't Marie, Maria Antonia, she was Antoine. Antoine? Yeah. So they gave her a boy's name. That's a girl's name. Is it? I mean, I think it's a boy's name now, but it was probably a girl's name back then. Yeah, that makes more sense. <laughs> so uh, the day of Antoine's birth, uh, perhaps inauspiciously, was, auspiciously, was the Feast of All Souls, or the Catholic Day of the Dead. Uh, so they did not celebrate her birthday on this day. They celebrated it on November 1st, which is the Feast of All Saints. It's also Dia de los Muertos. 
Yes. Give it some flavor. <laughs> yeah. Slightly cheerier, maybe. <laughs> uh, maybe equally as foreboding, uh, there was a massive earthquake in the city of Lisbon the same day, and it killed over 30,000 people and forced uh, the king of Portugal and his wife, who coincidentally uh, were Antoine's godparents, to flee the city. Now, I'm not not a you know religious leader or, or someone who can really make these determinations, but that feels like an omen. You would think so. Maybe. TBD. We'll find out. <laughs> I have no idea how the story ends. Yeah, no one knows how this one ends. <laughs> so as far as like world events were concerned, though, it was uh, the Treaty of Versailles uh, signed six months after her birth that ultimately would have the most impact on baby Antoine's life. Uh, yep. uh, so this was uh, a defensive pact against Prussia by the traditional enemies of Austria and France. So, you know, they had fought a bunch of wars and then they decided that they were going to be friends. Aww. And this treaty... Guaranteed that if either country was attacked, the other would respond with an army that was 24,000 strong. Aww. We'll get back to this. <laughs> In the meantime, Antoine's childhood could only be described as, you know, idyllic. It was not a sad royal childhood. It was actually like a very quaint royal child. Royal child. Her parents loved her. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> her parents loved her as much as parents could in the 1700s. I think, yeah, I think her mother was... Jen, I think her thoughts on her mother was, like, she loved her mother, but she was also, like, terrified of her mother. Which, yeah. given Maria Teresa's, like, whole she's was understandable. Checks out. <laughs> she she wasn't, like, neglected or abused. She, yeah. She grew up in a nice little palace and had lots of sisters to hang around with. And, yeah, I'm sure it was great. So, she split her time between the family's palaces in Vienna, uh, raised kind of in tandem with her older sister, Maria Carolina. Carolina, I'm going to keep saying Carolina. Uh, but she was known as Charlotte. <laughs> Everyone's got, like, a real name and then, like, a real name name. Apparently, she wasn't a particularly gifted student, but also that really didn't matter because she was, like, the youngest of ten daughters. Yeah, it's not like she's going to be a scholar. <laughs> yeah. She and, like she was expected to make a good match, but maybe not a particularly strategic one. The idea being that, like, by the time her parents got around to marrying her off, they probably would have already married her sisters off to much more, like, important. Powerful people, yeah. Powerful people, yeah. So the girls' education, as, you know... I think fairly typical for this time was focused more on their need to appear and perform gracefully at court events. Uh, so she had a music teacher. You might know his name is Christoph Gluck. Uh, he was a famous composer uh, and he was her. Yeah. He taught her music and she developed into a very talented musician. She learned to play the harp, the harpsichord and the flute. Uh, and it was also said that she had a beautiful singing voice. Damn. All right. I mean, I know I just made fun of her, but that's pretty impressive. Uh, so there is a story that uh, when Antoine was seven, she met Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. That guy. That name is definitely familiar, I'm sure. He was just three months younger than her. So they were the same age at this time. And he was being toured around by his parents. And they performed for the Imperial family at the Schoenburn Palace. God, he was like an Olsen twin. <laughs> yeah. So there's a story, and this is probably apocryphal, but it's like so cute that we're going to tell it, is that <laughs> upon seeing the young Marie Antoinette, Mozart just instantly fell in love, and he flung himself at her and declared that he would marry her. And while this probably isn't true, I do want someone to write me that historical romance novel. Please. Oh, I'd read the shit out of that, and I'm not, like, a romance person. Um, I will say that, comparatively, Marie Antoinette was pretty hot. Oh, yeah, she was beautiful. Comparatively. For a Habsburg, I would say yes. She The bar's low, but she she did it. 
Yeah. Uh, so tragedy would strike when the Emperor Francis died of a massive stroke while in Innsbruck to celebrate the marriage of the Archduke Leopold, who was Maria Antonia's uh, older brother. Hi. Years later, Marie Antoinette would remember the moment when, as Francis and Maria Theresa were setting on for Innsbruck, the emperor paused and rushed back to embrace his youngest daughter, who was just nine years old. Uh, As he hugged her again and again, Antoine noticed that he had tears in his eyes. Uh, Maybe it was was a premonition, and if so, it was accurate, as it was the last time she would ever see her father. Oh, that was very sad, and I... Decided to put into this episode to make everybody else sad. Yeah, thanks for bringing the party down. (laughs) That's my job. This series ends with a woman getting her head cut off. (laughs) Buckle up. I mean, our last big episode ended with 40-some people being eaten. Boy, we really did start the season with a couple of bummers, didn't we? (laughs) Like I said, it'll get better. We'll, We'll do fun stuff soon. There's a lot of cake and dancing yeah. and harpsichord playing in between now and like when she yes. gets her head cut off. So it's and fine. Penises. Don't forget, we've yet to get to the penis. I don't know if I'd consider that a joyful addition. It's kind of just something that happened to the episode. <laughs> so Antoine's oldest brother, Joseph, succeeded their father as emperor, and he shared power with the now widowed Maria Theresa. And this is something I did not look into, but I thought it was very intriguing that like essentially... They just, like, they were both emperor and empress, but they weren't married, of course, because he was their son. I don't know how the Holy Roman Empire worked, is what I'm trying to say. I feel like that also happened in ancient Egypt a couple times. Like, the pharaoh would die and his son would take over, but his mom would yeah. still be in power. I think that happened with Cleopatra, yeah, actually. Yeah, like, that happens in, like, a regency sort of situation where, like, if the kid is, like, five years old, like, obviously you need an adult. Like, he was he was fine. He was probably 30. I don't know what age he was, but he was a grown man (laughs) sharing power with his mother. Oh, yeah, that is weird. Um, Honestly, good for Maria Teresa, but I don't understand how it worked. Yeah, it's it's her power. (laughs) Maria Teresa's focus at this time was singular. She wanted to secure advantageous marriages for each and every one of her remaining daughters. That is a lot of work. Uh, so, following the marriage of Maria Christina, who was the Empress's favorite in 1766, there were five daughters left. Okay? Five. Damn, that is some good work she's put in. We've got Elizabeth. She was 23. Amalia was 21. Josepha. Josepha? I don't know how Josepha. to Josepha. She was 16. There's Charlotte, 15. And then there's little Antoine, our future Marie Antoinette. She was 12. So, my gosh. <laughs> so... Antoine, at this point, like I said, she wasn't, like, considered a vital player. She had four older sisters ahead of her. She was kind of going to get to just live her life. Yeah. Like, I think it was already kind of thrown around that she might possibly be a candidate for the future king of France. Like, that was bandied about. But it wasn't the priority at the moment. So her priority, Maria Teresa's, was she wanted a marriage with Ferdinand III. And Ferdinand III was the son of King Charles III of Spain, and uh, he was King of Sicily and King of Naples in his own right. He sounds old. He was like 15. Oh. So yeah, he was old for the time. Yeah. So (laughs) Josepha was 16, so she was kind of the obvious candidate. They were the closest in age. They decided, yeah, we're going to hook these two up. They're betrothed. Good work. And then, disasters. Again. Never mind. (laughs) So... (laughs) 
1767, both Marie Theresa and the Emperor Joseph's, Joseph's wife, Isabella of Parma, fell ill with smallpox. Ah, not great. Marie Theresa actually came so close to death that she actually received the last sacrament. Uh, but she, she turned it around. She got there. Uh, <laughs> and it was the younger empress who actually ended up passing away. Oh. So they placed her body in a tomb in the imperial crypt, as you do. Of, of course. The only reasonable thing. Uh, so Marie Theresa, once recovered, turned her attention back to, you know, her daughter, Josepha, just got betrothed. They have a wedding to plan. Priorities. <laughs> so, Jesus. in order to prepare for her imminent departure to Naples, she tells Josepha, you go down into the family crypt and you start praying. Because that's what good Catholic girls do. They pray in crypts. In cemeteries. <laughs> uh, so, unknown to the Empress, uh, the tomb of her daughter-in-law, Isabella, had not been properly sealed. No! And so, just as her marriage celebrations were about to begin, Josepha died of smallpox. God, always seal the tomb. We know this. (laughs) And the string of bad luck did not end there. The Archduchess Elizabeth also caught smallpox around this time. Everyone in Europe was catching smallpox at this time. It was the hot disease of the season. Uh, And while Elizabeth did live, her face was terribly scarred, essentially removing her from the marriage market altogether. Which it shouldn't have, but you know. (laughs) Yeah. This Again, like mid 18th century, everyone was terrible. Women were property. Yeah. Except Maria Teresa, who was, like, girl bossing it. She's mom bossing it at this point. Uh, So, despite all of this, the king of Naples was still expecting a wife, and so Maria Teresa offered him two options. (laughs) Pick one. You can take Amalia, or you can take Charlotte. So, Amalia, who had been um, proposed before, was rejected because she was, at 23, too old. Oh, fuck you! Fuck you, Ferdinand! (laughs) You 15-year-old little bitch! (laughs) Uh, so she was married off to the Duke of Parma. What, was and he, like, 18? An old man? I think probably, yes. I think she was still older, but, like, they dealt with it. Uh, so they already had this marriage treaty with Naples drawn up. So literally, they just, like, crossed out Joseph's name and, like, put in Charlotte's. I mean, they only had to cross out one word. because Not, like, literally, but essentially. They, like, literally just swapped the names in. Ugh. Uh, so Charlotte now officially going by Maria Carolina, um, was sent off to Naples and she became queen of Naples. Well, I mean, that's good for her. So had Maria Teresa's originally original plans held, it's very likely that it actually would have been Charlotte who had secured the marriage alliance with France. Uh, so she was actually the goddaughter of Louis the 15th, uh, who was the current king, uh, and only two years older than his grandson, the Dauphin, uh, Dauphin, Louis Auguste. But now, they're down a daughter, well, they're down two daughters, and it's only Antoine that's left. So, looks like it's her job. <laughs> yep. After a few years of negotiations and a last-ditch attempt to teach Antoine serviceable French, apparently she was just terrible at languages. It's a hard language. I Yeah, I don't blame her. Uh, so, a formal betrothal was made in February 1770 when the Archduchess was just 14. Ugh. Uh, Later that April, she was married by proxy to Louis Auguste, uh, with her brother Archduke Ferdinand standing in for the Dauphin. That's weird. Why would... It is weird. That was a very common thing, but it's... The idea of... (laughs) Just wait. Yeah, but you gotta ship these princesses, like, cross-country on these journeys. They're not putting them in a big crate with Abu Dhabi (laughs) stamped on the side. Like, they basically are, though. 
And so it's like, I think the idea is you got to secure the marriage before they get there. And then once they get there, they're all set. Like you have no choice. Like if she shows up and she has like a club foot and like half her face is missing, it's like, sorry. Yeah, kind (laughs) of. So I'm glad we've uh, moved past this. Like we, like the monarchy in many places is bullshit and it shouldn't exist. But I'm glad that we're not doing this shit anymore. Correct. So the new bride, 14 years old, having now adopted the name Marie Antoinette, was scheduled to depart for France at nine o'clock the following morning. An elaborate procession would carry her there. Accompanying her were 132 dignitaries and just as many doctors, hairdressers, cooks, bakers, and blacksmiths. I do remember this part. Yes. (laughs) The party required 57 coaches and 376 horses, with another 20,000 horses posted along the route. I think to, like, swap in... They didn't have a lot to do back then. Like... Like, you have to imagine, like, if they had jobs and, like, schedules to keep to, this wouldn't happen, but no one had anything better to do? No. <laughs> no one had anything better to do than, like, just walk to France, which is essentially what they did. Thank God we invented movies and stuff, because this is insane. <laughs> yeah, the journey would take two and a half weeks, most of which Marie Antoinette spent inside her carriage, usually for upwards of nine hours a day. Ugh. Uh, they did have, like, I think receptions and, like, parties along the way that they would stop in towns. and Yeah, but there's no, like, in-flight movie or anything. That's got to be so dull. <laughs> I like, I love this part of the movie so much. And I'm go- now is when I'm going to start referencing the movie because the movie is brilliant. And it's just, like, a montage of, like, her and her little friends. And they're, like, playing cards and they're, like, sleeping. And she's, like, showing them the little miniature of Louis and, like, <laughs> This is my husband doll. But like, yeah, imagine being 14 years old and stuck in a carriage for nine hours a day. I mean, two and a half weeks. Okay, maybe not. I've been on road trips with my family. Like, I'm familiar. (laughs) A road trip like that every day for two and a half weeks. Uh, So the handover itself was set to take place on an island in the middle of the Rhine River, more or less kind of like astride the border of Austria and France. Yeah, I find it. Like, I mean, everything is going to be weird because they're French and it's the 1700s, but how they did a trade-off just in the middle of fucking nowhere. Like, drop her off at the castle. Um, I think in the movie it's a tent, but I think, like, in there was, like, some sort of, like, structure or building on the island, but it was, like, fallen into disrepair, so they, like, really hastily fixed it up so it would be, like, you know, nice. It's just they're meeting in the middle of nowhere like it's a drug deal. Basically. Uh, so here on this island, uh, Marie Antoinette said goodbye to her Austrian attendants. Uh, her Austrian wedding clothes were stripped away to allow for new French-made gar- garments. The symbolism here is very pointed. So, like, according to the lady's maid, Madame Campan, um, she had said that the queen was to retain nothing belonging to a foreign court, and that included, unfortunately, her beloved pug, Mops. No! <laughs> she had to give up. And actually, I, I won't get into this later, but uh, she was like kind of like assigned an Austrian advance, ambassador, Kyle Mercy. We'll hear about him later. But he spent probably more time than he should have on her behalf, like uh, petitioning for the dog to be sent to France. No, later. he did the right thing. She was 14. She is a child. Sometimes like it's so hard to like conceptualize these historical figures. As people, one, like, people to begin with, but two, like, really understanding how young they are. And, again, this is why the Marie Antoinette movie is so brilliant, because it's so, it's just so good at showing how young they were and 
demonstrating how, that? Um, not not related to that specifically, but what language do they speak in Austria? German. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Oh, German so. to French is a hard. I can see why yeah. she had problems. <laughs> Completely separate, like set of languages. Yeah, Germanic to Romantic. Yeah, it would be difficult too. Uh, so from here, the party continued on through France to the forest of Campagne. Sure. sure. Uh, where on the afternoon of May 14th, Marie Antoinette would be presented to the king, uh, his three unmarried daughters, uh, the Madame Tantes, uh, and of course the king's grandson, her new husband, uh, the Dauphin. Uh, so so Riptorn wasn't king yet? No, Riptorn was king. He's Louis XV. Okay, so he is actually Jason Schwartzman's grandpa. Yes. So, yeah. So, to put this in the context of kind of, like, greater history, in the two French scandals episode, we talked about Louis Fourteenth, the Sun yes. King, the guy who did Versailles. The Sun, S-U-N, King. Yes. He was also a son to someone, <laughs> but not... Okay. Yeah. He was a very... the very, the, like, the biggest French king of the time. Physically, uh, or... <laughs> like, by reputation. He was a big deal. <laughs> okay. He was not Henry VIII. Um... But he actually also like survived all of his sons. So Louis the Fifteenth is Louis the Fourteenth's grandson. Okay. So he like inherited the throne at like age five as a grandson because all of the his dad's his dad and uncles had all passed. Uh, and then similarly, the Dauphin Louis Auguste, um, <laughs> his father, he had died along with like an older brother. I believe. So he also, like, was not expected to take the That's throne. very sad, but when you said Louis Auguste like that, I Auguste. just pictured Jason Schwartzman dressed as Augustus Gloop. <laughs> By the way, amazing casting, Jason Schwartzman in that movie. I love it. It's so my good. favorite Schwartzman role. <laughs> uh, it said that on her arrival, Marie Antoinette impulsively dashed up to Louis XV and curtsied. So cute! Uh, the king was instantly won over despite his general disappointment with the size of her bosom. Really? She's 14, Louis. Yeah, so there's this story, and I'm starting to tell this, and then got distracted. Uh, but as he, like, was arriving to the forest, he, like, basically, like, asked his ambassadors, like, hey, what do you think of the new Dauphine's, like, boobs? And the ambassador was like, um, I haven't looked. And the king was like, oh, didn't you? That's the first thing I look at. Yeah, that's definitely the first thing I would ask, like, uh, my grandson's wife, what do what her tits yeah. look like? Yeah, I, I'd be very interested to hear about, you know, the breasts of my 14-year-old <laughs> granddaughter-in-law. Sure. Ugh. <laughs> Men! So she had this really cute, like, introduction to the King of France. He thought she was adorable. Uh, and then the Dauphin uh, greeted her with a very formal embrace and a perfunctory kiss. Very, very cute. Very chaste. They're 14. God, it's so weird to think about that. He was like 15, I guess. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, he was maybe not quite as dashing as his miniature portrait sent to Marie Antoinette had made him seem. I mean, his brother's probably hotter, but... <laughs> yeah. He was a little dumpy. He also was, like, very short-sighted. So, like, he... I think it was, like, he never could really, like, focus on people. <laughs> he kind of, like, looked past him a little the bit. inbreeding. <laughs> yeah. And he's just... He was really awkward. Um <laughs> Yeah, and like the like Marie Antoinette, she was he was kind of born a spare. He wasn't originally supposed to be Dauphin. That's kind of cute, though. <laughs> I I like them as a couple. Honestly, we will come to learn that like as far as royal marriages go, theirs was not the worst. It kind of feels like uh, the Tsar and Tsarina of Russia during the whole Rasputin thing, where like 
They're both kind of dumb and they shouldn't be in power, but they really liked each other. That's, it's very similar, honestly. <laughs> and it ended um, about the same. Yeah. And it, and again, it's not like Louis was like without his good qualities. He was very smart. He was very passionate. He was really into like history and geography and science. He spoke fluent Latin and English. Uh, he was really into locksmithing. <laughs> I was, was just going to say hobby. he was really into locks and keys. <laughs> yes. Uh, his true passion, though, was hunting. He kept, like, a whole journal that was mostly details about, like, the hunts he went on. Uh, and then once in a while, he would, like, record something else that happened. So on May 14th, this day that he meets his wife is, he it, he just wrote, meeting with Madame La Dauphine. <laughs> that was all he had to say about it. That's about what I would expect from, like, a, a teenage boy, though. <laughs> a very, like, shy and awkward 15-year-old boy. <laughs> So on May 16th, they had their big formal marriage ceremony in the Palace of Versailles. Uh, Marie Antoinette wore a white brocade dress inflated by very dramatic hoops. Of course. While one guest observed that the new Dauphine looked not above 12, uh, she was also praised for her dignity and bearing. Uh, the, Dauphine, <laughs> the Dauphin, conversely, appeared bored throughout the ceremony, and his hands shook as he placed a wedding wife wedding ring on his new wife's face. Well, it's a Catholic wedding. Of course he's <laughs> bored. I would be bored, too. I have been bored at Catholic weddings. I guess, yeah, I guess he understands Latin, so maybe, like, can follow along better than most, but I'm sure it's not still not I interesting. Speak from experience, it doesn't help when yeah. you know the Latin. It's just boring in a different language. The mass, as was tradition, was followed by the ritual bedding of the young couple, attended by everyone who had the rights of entry to their chamber, based on rank and position. Yikes. Which is not a small number. <laughs> Mercifully, like, so they don't stay. They, you know, they have a blessing over the bed, and then they help the Dauphin and Dauphine into bed. Like, tuck them in real nice. And then the crowd goes away. I'm going to be real with you. On my wedding night, we were both so tired that I fell asleep laying on the floor. And Travis had to wake me up. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right. The thought of 30 people being, like, hanging around was like, I just want to go to fucking bed. And And they're saying prayers, and your priest is there, and you're 15. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's the part I don't really have experience with is doing all that at 15. Yeah, so they have they do this whole big thing. They tuck you into bed, and then they <laughs> go away. But the, what they assume is that you're in bed together. Now is when you will physically consummate the marriage. I just pictured the bishop, like, tucking the covers up around <laughs> their chin and giving uh, Louis just, like, a little kiss on the forehead. <laughs> Tuck on the forehead. Sleep, sleep sweetly. Sweet dreams. <laughs> My dear prince. Have fun fucking. Well, Emily, here's where the joke ends and it gets deadly serious because Uh. they did not, in fact, have a happy fucking. (laughs) That's the worst wedding card ever. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, nothing happened. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. They're they're children. I mean, I'm kind of relieved. And honestly, it, as we will come to learn, it would take seven years for Louis and Marie Antoinette to actually consummate their marriage. And we will get to exactly why. And again, you're going to know so much more about Louis XVI's penis than anybody could reasonably want to. Did it not work or something? We'll, or? we'll get into it. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, this was, in, this was not a secret in the court of Versailles. Everybody knew. Well, yeah, because everyone was fucking there. Yeah. <laughs> so. 
<laughs> already the next morning, there were already rumors that the Dauphin and Dauphine had not, um, for lack of a better phrase, done the deed. And their lack of sexual activity would, in fact, continue to be a matter of great interest, not only to, like, the king and Maria Theresa, which understandably have a vested interest, at least when it comes to, is there an heir? Um, but basically, like, all the courts of Europe, <laughs> like, they, like, ambassadors would get monthly reports on whether she had gotten her period. God! Like, oh, God. awful. <laughs> I don't know. That's not information you share with people. That's something you keep very close unless someone's like, hey, you're being kind of a bitch. And then you tell them what's happening. Yeah. And the thing is, like, she isn't, like, actively sharing. Like, I think she's reporting back to her mother. So, she, like, she keeps her mother very informed about, you know, her periods generally. <laughs> but also, like, you know, she gets her period in the middle of the night. It's You, you bleed on your bed sheets, and the cle- cleaning ladies clean the bed sheets. They notice that she's gotten her period. And everybody knows. <laughs> yeah, I guess they didn't really have period underwear back then. Yeah. And, like, uh, good ways to track it so you can kind of get ahead of the curve. Yeah. So part of the reason this was such, you know, like, a massive interest to everyone is this is a very dangerous position for Marie Antoinette to be in. Like, uh, if the marriage isn't consummated, it can be annulled and... It would all be for naught. I mean, uh, and that was... That's usually the case, like, with... um. Uh, what's his ass? Henry the that one, the Henry big the, the, the big Hen- Henry the Eighth. Yeah, that was the reason he was able to um, get through wives so quickly. Yeah, essentially, there was like a whole thing with like Catherine of Aragon where he was allowed to marry her because she was actually married to his older brother, but they were able to get married after his brother had died because she claimed, and I think probably correctly, I have no reason to distrust Catherine of Aragon, um, that they had <laughs> never consummated their marriage. So it wasn't, like, improper. And he used that against her when he was trying to divorce her. He said that they did. He so. was a little shit. We'll talk about him in a different episode. We will we'll get to Henry VIII. We'll get to his wives, because, honestly, fuck that guy. He got an entire HBO show. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And without an heir, really, she has no political influence in France at all. And that's why her mother sent her there, was to... Have, an have political influence. Yeah. Uh, Maria Teresa, for her part, put the blame almost entirely on Marie Antoinette, as you do. That's how um, it went. <laughs> she saw it as a failure to inspire sexual passion in her husband uh, and encouraged her to, quote, lavish more caresses on the Dauphin, as if this alone would solve the issue. Ew! Please, my, my teenage daughter, please get more handsy with your husband. I feel like... Uh- We've really done a, a 180 on, on that with our teenagers. <laughs> yeah, and I'm weird. glad. Weird how our attitudes have changed on this. I, I just cannot fathom my mother ugh, being like, are you too fucking? Why aren't you fucking? Is it your fault? <laughs> it's your fault. your fault. Touch his dick more. Oh, God. <laughs> Touch his dick more. Great advice. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it depends on what you're trying to do, but it will usually get the job done. <laughs> Uh, so amidst all the speculation, Marie Antoinette had to adjust to her new life in Versailles. Uh, so the court of Vienna, where she had grown up, was notably, like, way more informal than Versailles, which was, like, just... Oh, God, the French were so far up their own ass with, like, protocol. Were, yeah. 
and this is at a time when like this is like mid 1700s like we're not in the middle ages anymore and they're still acting kind of like they are like most of the i need to say most of the course of europe they hadn't modernized but they've been kind of moving away from that and france was really like stuck in it sarah they still haven't modernized <laughs> no Rel- uh, relatively speaking <laughs> A modern monarchy is a, uh, what's it called? Genovia. That's a modern monarchy. monarchy. (laughs) Uh, So in Versailles, they still observed many of the ceremonies that had been put in place by Louis XIV, the previous king. Uh, This included ritual morning dresses, dressings and evening undressings attended to by high-ranking courtiers uh, and public dinner where pretty much anyone who wanted to could just like pop in and gawk at the royals as they ate. The dressing ceremony is my favorite part of the movie. (laughs) Yeah, I yeah I have a bit about that um, in just a second, but I will just kind of add, because this is my two-part episode, I have to embellish everything. Of course. So the whole reason for all of this stuff, and we may have mentioned this in an earlier episode, but Louis XIV had, like, specifically designed his court at Versailles this way. Like, the idea was, by keeping all of the nobles in France at court, where he could see them, and constantly distracted by ceremony and protocol, yes. he was the king's favorite basically ensured that nobody had any time to like do an uprising and to be fair he had a legitimate reason to be concerned uh and then like the hundred or so years like since that time like the formality had become less about like the king exerting his control and more just like power plays between the you know various aristocrats of france it's like gossip Uh, girl with big hair it's just very much so like just like handing a garment to the dauphine during her morning dressing because she was not allowed to reach for anything she had to be handed everything uh was very like a jealously guarded privilege and was basically like a reminder that if you were the one who got to hand the dauphine her shoes yeah it just kind of showed everybody in the room that you were the top dog not having to reach for anything or like dress yourself sounds cool in theory for about five minutes until Again, you're just standing there like, can someone hand me my goddamn pants? Like, I'm cold. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, this is what you mentioned. This is the scene in the Sofia Coppola movie, which is, like, a real thing that happened. It's like, there was this one morning. It wasn't, like, the one right after her wedding. That was the, you know, um, artistic whatever. Uh, So there's this whole situation. Marie Antoinette had fully undressed and was waiting for the mistress of the household to hand her her chemise, like, the underdress. Uh, and then the Duchess de Orleans came in. She was a princess of the blood, which is like she was a member of the extended royal family. So she came in. She was automatically higher ranking. So according to the etiquette of Versailles, the mistress of the household had to hand the chemise over to the Duchess before the Duchess could do anything. Like, she couldn't even get her gloves off. Oh, God. And herein comes the Comtesse de Provence, who was married to the Dauphin's brother. <laughs> so she took precedence. Why are all of these people coming in when she's nude? It's a very special ceremony that they have every morning. Oh, God. And so this whole time, Marie Antoinette is just naked, like, sitting there. (laughs) She has her arms crossed over her because she's, like, freezing cold and shivering. Yeah, because it's a fucking Uh, castle. Like, it's drafty. uh, So per Antonia Fraser, I'm going to quote directly from the book, she tried to cover her impatience by laughing, but not before muttering audibly, this is maddening. This is ridiculous. <laughs> Which is um, old-timey French for this is some bullshit. This is some real bullshit. So in a letter to her mother, Marie Antoinette described her whole daily routine. So she would wake up between 9 and 10. 
good hour. Yeah. Uh, she would get dressed informally, um, just enough to like say her prayers, eat breakfast, and then she'd go visit the uh, the royal aunts, who were the king's daughters. Uh, and then at 11, she would get her hair done, which is, of course, always a big to-do. Uh, and then at noon, the doors would be thrown open, and that is when this whole ritual ceremony, dressing ceremony happened. So she told her mother, I put on my rouge and wash my hands in front of the whole world. Uh, so once she was dressed, she would go to mass um, with the king if he was at Versailles and with the Dauphin if he was not. Uh, and then they would all sit down to a public dinner. <laughs> so her life was not only on display to the court of Versailles, but to her mother, who, like, as I mentioned, is not only, like, getting detailed letters from her daughter, but is getting reports on Marie's behavior from Count Merci, who is the Austrian ambassador in France. It sounds exhausting. Just imagine your mother knowing all of that about your life. My mother knows very little about my life, and I intend to keep (laughs) it that way. It's also like, yeah, and Maria Teresa, she had like nothing but criticism for the Dauphine, so that was the whole other, like, dealing with that, I'm sure was not So her mom didn't like the husband that she set her up with? No, she was just like, you're not doing enough to... You know, get him horny. Ah, uh, yes. You're not you wielding your influence enough. You're not behaving well. I don't like that you're gambling. Like, <laughs> nothing but criticism on all fronts. <laughs> that, that last one's fair. Uh, so, but, you know, generally, though, she was actually very popular with the people of France, at least at this point. <laughs> you know, a little later. Uh, we'll get to that. Uh, she was seen as sweet and caring, and she was known for her charity and her tendency to stop her carriage to attend to individual peasants in various states of distress. So a real Princess Diana. Yeah. Very much a people's princess. Uh, so over time, she formed a circle of friends with um, Louis's brothers, who were the Comte of Provence and Artois, and eventually their wives as they got married. Uh, and also among her close friends was the Princess de Lamballe, and she was the 21-year-old widowed daughter of the king's cousin, who was the Duke de Pentevere, uh, and the Dauphine, and she was one of Marie Antoinette's ladies in waiting. So she was seen by most to be, you know, very respectful, respectable, and dignified. Someone who's kind of above the intrigues at court, mm, um, though yes. apparently not particularly clever. <laughs> just, just drag all these poor historical ladies. But you know, all in all, like a very suitable companion for the Dauphine, as far as most are concerned. Yeah. Uh, she remained less popular with those like in court who were kind of skeptical of France's new alliance with Austria. Kind of, I'm not going to say understandably so because you know it's just general xenophobia. But like they'd been enemies for years, and all of a sudden they're allies, and I'm sure that's a switch. Well, I mean, if all of a sudden, like, I mean, if all of a sudden we were allied with Russia, it would be weird. well, yeah. Like if all of a sudden the president was married to like a Russian lady, we'd be kind of like, yeah. Eh? We would be very skeptical of that, especially given the current climate. It'd also be very weird if Joe Biden was married to a different lady. So, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, so some suspected the new Dauphine had been sent as an Austrian spy, uh, which, I mean, eh, kind of. Well. Uh, she was never really able to shake this accusation. Like, this would be something that followed her her entire life. It's like half true, though. Yeah. Uh, even prior to her arrival in France, so one of the royal aunts had coined this nickname, La Autre, La Autre, oh boy, La Autre Chienne, which is um, a play on words, Chienne meaning dog, it essentially translates to the Austrian bitch. Yeah, that's exactly what it translates to. Yeah. Uh, and of course, her failure to produce an heir, not helping matters. <sighs> 
So in a letter to Mark, her daughter's 16th birthday in 1771, Maria Teresa wrote of how well all of Marie Antoinette's brothers and sisters were doing in their marriages, culminating in a pointed warning. And I needed to like quote Maria Teresa's letters here because they are savage. This is some real mom shit. (laughs) All this news which should fill me with contentment is is diminished by reflections on your dangerous situation. All the worse because you either don't understand the danger or don't wish to. You simply will not employ the necessary means to get yourself out of it. By which she means touching the prince's dick more. (laughs) The key to surviving Versailles, her mother made clear, would uh, be maintaining the favor of the king. Um, seeking out his company, and maybe more importantly, <laughs> extending an olive branch to the Madame du Barry. Oh, wasn't she kind of a bitch? She, she's fascinating. I, I, um, I do not get into her whole history here, but she, yeah, she's a, well, let's talk about the Madame du Barry. So she was the official mistress of King Louis XV. Uh, she was kind of scandalous. Uh, she was born the illegitimate daughter of a seamstress and had worked as a courtesan. And that's basically how she kind of got in front of the king. Like she had um, clients among the nobles and eventually she got on the king's radar. Um, she couldn't actually become his official mistress without a title. So he married her off to the, um, the Comte du Barry. Uh, enforced a birth certificate claiming that she was of noble descent. He must have really liked this lady. Yes. She must have been very interesting, I'm sure. Yes, interesting. It was her personality. (laughs) And she also, like, she had, like, pet monkeys and, like, she was crazy. She was the one, if you've listened to our Two French Scandals episode, she was the one that the king had made the crazy necklace for. Right. Oh, my God, I love that story. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So on her arrival at Versailles, Marie Antoinette had been persuaded by the royal aunts not to acknowledge Dubarry. Uh, Even as the king's official official mistress, like her past wasn't a secret and that didn't make her particularly popular. And I think probably obviously not popular with his daughters. Yeah. Uh, So this, um, as both Count Mercy and Maria Theresa would point out, was kind of a risky move on Marie Antoinette's part. Essentially, like she was snubbing the king's mistress and this could be read as her expressing disapproval of the king himself, which she can't afford to do right now. No. So on New Year's Day, 1772, Marie Antoinette was persuaded to address DeBerry, commenting, there are a lot of people at Versailles today. <laughs> and apparently this was enough. <laughs> like, DeBerry seemed satisfied enough with the recognition, uh, and Marie Antoinette would later tell her husband that she would never again say a single word to that woman, and the drama had passed. Uh, I think there was like one more incident where they were they weren't at Versailles. They were at one of their other palaces, and they were talking in a group. They were both part of the same group conversation, and they somehow like convinced Marie Antoinette essentially like to turn her body in the direction of Dubarry, so she wasn't talking directly to her, but it was enough of an acknowledgement that it counted. Fair enough. Yeah, rich people are weird. Yeah. <laughs> so. Now we get to the penis. Is this how we're going to close the episode down for part no. two? Oh, thank God. No. We, we've we got some other stuff after the penis. I just don't want the penis to be the last thing on people's minds for a week. Uh, so in the spring of 1773, with the Dauphin and Dauphine's marriage still unconsummated three years in. They still haven't, like, fucked? Like, it, it's not even that they don't have any kids. It's just that they haven't done it yet? Yes, they are three years in. <laughs> oh, my God. Yep. I'm, like... I, I feel for them. They're 
you know, young, but goddamn, just like give it a shot. <laughs> Uh, so the king ordered a doctor by the name of Jean-Marie Lasson to examine Louis, um, basically to investigate if there may be a physical impediment preventing him from, you know, carrying out his royal duty. I'm glad they finally decided to check him out and, like, maybe this isn't Marie's fault. Right. Uh, so it was theorized both then and kind of in years since that Louis may have been suffering from a condition known as phimosis. And Ooh. I'm terribly sorry. That we have to give into this level of detail, but this is essentially like the inability to retract the skin covering the head of the penis. He had a tight foreskin, they assume. Well, that's why you take it off. Yes. Yeah. And that's usually what they would do to cure it was they would do a circumcision. Um, but this was kind of a radical course of action, considering Louis was an adult. And this was a time when anesthetics or painkillers ah, didn't exist. <laughs> so Fair enough. That was a serious surgery. So they didn't want to jump to that right away. Yeah, I can see where he would be hesitant for that to be the first thing. Fortunately, Lasan, um, he concluded that all the royal couple needed was, quote, proper instruction. He found the Dauphin, or the Dauphin well-made and concluded it was clumsiness and ignorance that were preventing the act itself. Marie Antoinette, to her, like to the Dauphin's credit, Marie Antoinette reported back that he had handled the whole situation very well and without embarrassment. He had spoken very frankly with the doctor and all of that. <laughs> Good for him. These are children. <laughs> so, uh, indeed, uh, his instructions seemed to do the trick, question mark. We'll get to it later in the second part. Oh. Uh, later that summer, Marie Antoinette did write to her mother to report that she considered her marriage to be consummated, even if she was not yet pregnant. I I guess we'll get to it. I don't want to know why she considered it. Like, it might not be definite. We'll get back to this cliffhanger in part two, because <laughs> we'll find out exactly what was happening in uh, their marriage bed. And it's I would great. rather not, but I guess I don't have a choice. <laughs> Uh, the timing of this event was suspicious enough, as the Comte d'Artois, who was Louis's brother, uh, had just been married, or was just to, about to be married. Ah. And Marie Antoinette had made it very clear to Louis that if the new Comtesse were to get pregnant before she did, it would be absolutely humiliating. <laughs> Fortunately for her, this did not come to pass, at least not quite yet. <laughs> and she had other successes to report to her mother that year. So on June 8th, she and the Dauphin made their first official visit to Paris. Uh, this was an expedition Maria Theresa had been lobbying for quite some time, assuming correctly that such an event would play to her daughter's strengths and do, you know, a lot of great things for her public image. Basically show her off to the people and be like, look at how cool she is. Yeah, and she was right. They drew in like a really great crowd. It was so large and enthusiastic that they you know, did a little promenade in the gardens of the Tuileries Palace. And they actually got stuck in place <laughs> for nearly an hour because there were so many people, they couldn't move forward and they couldn't go backward. That's kind of cute. Yeah. Uh, and Count Mercy, in his report to the Empress, had nothing but praise for the Dauphin. The crowd, which he, summon- he said numbered 50,000, uh, <laughs> continually exclaimed how beautiful she is, how charming she is. Um, and I'm sure only about 10% of them had smallpox. Um, <laughs> I'd bump that up a little. That's not foreshadowing. That's just an observation (laughs) smallpox was a big thing back then oh yeah uh in january of 1774 the dauphin and dauphine attended a ball in paris that is notable if only because it was at said ball the marie antoinette made the first acquaintance of a young swedish nobleman by the name of count axel fursen 
Oh, that guy. This is Jamie Dornan. So please picture a very young, very cute Jamie Dornan. (laughs) Yeah, that was a big realization for me. Because, like, I watched that movie a ton in, like, high school and stuff. And then Uh Jamie Dornan became, like, a thing. Yeah. And then you go back and you're like... Oh, he's a baby. Tom Hardy is in this movie as well. What? I forget this every time I watch it. He's in, it's like a very minor part. He's got like three lines. He's in two scenes. But how old a, is Tom Hardy? He's a baby. I don't know how old he was, but he's a baby. Hold on. This is, this is where I contribute to the episode. He was born in 1977. And Marie Internet came out in 2000. So it would have been shot in 2005. He was about tw- 28? Baby. He's older than I thought he was. That bitch is going to be 46 this year. Yeah. Good for you, Tom. He probably has a nice, like, skincare, skincare regimen. Oh, I'm absolutely sure. Uh, so, Firsten was just two months older than Marie Antoinette, who I think was maybe 19 at this point. Okay. So, she's, like, a person now. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, he was making his grand tour of Europe at the time, which is the thing, you know, noblemen did. Uh, he was the son of a noblewoman and the marshal of the armies back in Sweden. Uh, and he was rumored to be the richest man in the whole country. Ooh. Uh, he was also, to quote Antonia Fraser, dazzlingly good looking. I can, so, yeah. Yeah, I see it. With the Jimmy Dornan. Uh, so he arrived at Versailles on New Year's Day, um, but I don't think it's paths crossed with Marie Antoinette until this ball in Paris. Uh, and actually, when they did, he was completely unaware of who she was. So apparently it was tradition for the royal party to, like, attend the ball in masks. Unclear as whether this meant it was, like, a masked ball or, like, just the important people showed up in masks, which I feel like would be a little conspicuous. It would negate the whole mask thing. Yeah. In the movie, it's a masked ball. So let's Which makes more that. sense. Yeah. Except for Jamie Dornan. He's the only one in that scene not wearing a mask. You can't cover that, though. Like, it's because he's so pretty. You can't cover that face. Uh, so in his journal, Furson wrote, The Delphine talked to me for a long time without me knowing who she was. At least <laughs> when she was recognized. Every, at last, when she was recognized, everybody pressed around her and she retired into a box at three o'clock. I left the ball. Did you say she retired into a box? Yeah. I, maybe like an opera box? I would hope because I did picture something very weird. I think it was at the opera. I did not write that down, but I think that's what it was. Okay. Makes more sense. Yeah. Um, So, uh, well, Firsten did attend a few more balls with Marie Antoinette uh, before finally departing for England. Uh, There's no evidence that, like, there was a love affair brewing yet. Uh, Firsten was kind of a slut. He had ladies everywhere. Yeah, like he had. Yeah, he kept these journals where he would like frequently comment about the women he was seeing, uh, and there's no particular mentions of Marie Antoinette at this time. And uh, given that her experience with sex up to this point was mostly just kind of awkward, there's certainly no hint that like she was looking to pursue extramarital affairs either. Uh, yeah, and- she probably has a very weird idea of what sex is at this point. Yeah, and like I think. Um, her brother, weirdly enough, hmm. um, Emperor Joseph, like, later points out in a letter or something, but basically acknowledges that she's kind of a little prudish. Which, like he said, like, given the way, like, she has been introduced to sex as a concept, totally makes sense to me. Well, her family is super Catholic, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the same as, like, purity culture today, where you are, like, it's hammered in that sex is a dirty thing that is gross, and then... <laughs> You get married, and you're just supposed to do it all the time. Yeah, and then 
you find like the person is like you don't get a lot that kind of thing yeah you gotta test drive the car before you drive it off the lot not to take a weird left turn into purity culture discourse but anyway so this is all that can be said about person at this point i did want to introduce him as kind of the teaser we will learn um i don't know a lot more but we'll definitely hear a little bit more about uh count person in our next episode do we get to talk about his dick unfortunately no <laughs> unfortunately i mean you if you want to talk about his dick we can speculate i guess i did phrase it as do we get to <laughs> uh so more significantly the lives of louis and marie antoinette would change dramatically uh just a couple months later when in late april king louis the 15th fell ill with smallpox i lied actually that previous thing was um foreshadowing <laughs> everybody has smallpox that's not how we caught it though uh, so his health failing, he ordered Madame de Berry to leave Versailles so that he might receive his last rites. Uh, and he finally passed away on May 10th, 1774, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Do we know how old he was? I want to say mid-50s, mid-60s. Not bad! I have to look. Respectable age. But, like, not old, old. Especially for those times. Like, old for those times. Louis and Marie Antoinette, who had been waiting anxiously in the Dauphine's apartments, heard, quote, a terrible noise exactly like thunder. As soon as the king had been pronounced dead, all the courtiers had been keeping vigil at his bedside, rushed to the new mar- monarch and his wife. That's which gotta be overwhelming. Also just kind of displays how little they knew about germ theory at this time, but... <laughs> On being proclaimed king and queen of France, Louis and Marie Antoinette fell to their knees as Louis prayed, Dear God, guide us and protect us. We are too young to reign. <laughs> no, I think he phrased they it more were, like, Dear God, guide us. <laughs> Dear God. Yeah. Uh, which, uh, just to note, they were 19 years old when they took the throne. Oh, they shouldn't even be responsible for, like, a house, let alone a country. They can't rent a car. Yeah. <laughs> so... That is where we're going to leave it today, where they have finally become king and queen of France. Um, and we'll get to that. That whole I mean, story. At least they got his dick working again. Uh, or working for the first time. I don't... <laughs> that makes it sound like it's a lawnmower. <laughs> I, I, I get the impression that it wasn't that his dick didn't work. Just that he wasn't using it correctly. He didn't know how to use it. They really should give classes Emily, on, like... You You were the one who didn't want to end this episode on the penis. I'm sorry, I just... And you you're br- taking us right back into penis territory. Penis town, say, if you will. I will say, putting it in the cold open is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. prophecy. We have made this episode all about the penis. Well, yeah, because now I'm thinking about it all the time. <laughs> so, yeah, join us in two weeks for Marie Antoinette Part 2. We'll take a little break uh, to do a, you know, a seasonally appropriate mini, and then we'll get back to the French Revolution. Which is, it's a thing. It, God, it's going to be such a big topic. Yes. Uh, are you going to do all of the song and dance numbers from Les Mis or? Different Revolution. That wasn't the French Revolution? No. I've never seen Les Mis. It was like in 1812. You've no never shit. seen they miss? Uh, no, I know. It, it seems too sad. It, it's very sad, actually. I, I didn't watch Moulin Rouge for like 20 years because I heard that someone died at the end and it was sad and it was correct. But I also missed out on a very good movie. Not famously exactly, but famous to me. Um, I've seen they miss live maybe three or four times. Um, and not like for a long time now, but like when I was a teenager, it was my 
favorite musical. I was obsessed with Les Mis. <laughs> and every time we saw it, I would start crying earlier and earlier to the, like, I think the last time I saw it, like the overture just made me burst into tears. And I just cried the whole time. If it <laughs> makes you feel less crazy. Um, I've only seen cats in person once. Um, I started crying as soon as, <laughs> as soon as the curtain came up. I was so like excited and overwhelmed that I just started to cry. Musicals do that. Like I was just talking with Sadie about like, when did you cry in Hamill? Because she just immediately. Like, when do you start crying? You start crying immediately because there's always that huge overture at the beginning, and you're so excited. And there's so much emotion just inherent in musical as a, in musicals as a medium that it's like impossible not to have a strong emotional reaction to it. And if you're like a person like me, and I presume you, like you express that emotion by sobbing. We're very sensitive ladies. I'm so sensitive. I've gotten sensitive every... I cried at the Marie Antoinette movie this last time. I've never cried at this before, but now I cry at this movie. I no, Moulin at- Rouge had me sobbing the other night and like expected but yeah ewan mcgregor just just hit me like just right that oh, night so good. I need, god it's I such need a good to movie watch a moulin rouge it's been a while i've been avoiding rewatching elvis um <laughs> because i know it'll make me feel oh all those feelings so many feelings um no that was that was great um it, it brought back a lot of very fond memories of the film yep but also got in a little deeper than the film. I had always been under the impression that it was one of those movies where it was like, this is technically based on her life, but it's, you know, we took some big liberties. They take some artistic liberties for sure, but, like, the real, like, grand, like, points that it makes are very much, like, directly from Antonia Fraser, who, like, I assume is a fairly respected historian. Because she's written a lot of books. So I assume Antonia Fraser knows what she's talking about and has, like, actually referencing good sources. And the movie is just basically taking scenes from that book and recreating them. It does have the same feeling as, like, Our Flag Means Death compared to the Steed Bonnet story, where it's like, I know it didn't happen exactly like that, but that is how the story went. And it doesn't feel like it because it feels more fun. Famously, there's like a scene where they're like shopping for shoes and there's just like a pair of lavender con- converse, um, like in amongst all the rest of the shoes. And I, <laughs> I caught them this time, I think for the first time. And it's just like they stylistically, it's so great. And that's kind of what I love about it is like it just does such a great job of conveying that they are teenagers and that these are really, really young, really rich people. <laughs> it's Gossip Girl in France. Yeah. And they should not be expected to like do all the shit that they were expected to do. I was going to say, it's a failure of this system. That's kind of going to be my thesis, I think, for the next episode. It does have a lot in common with the Romanov story. Um, I mean, the Romanovs were a little older, and they should have known better, and the stakes were a little bit higher, I guess, because it was the whole... Yeah, but um, I learned a lot today. I learned that Les Mis wasn't set during the French Revolution like I thought it was. I will say... The extent of my knowledge of that is it isn't the French Revolution. It's a different one. Oh, I'm definitely going to get too high and read the entire Wikipedia article for oh, Les Mis yeah, and then, it. yeah. <clears throat> um. Well, let's see. Uh, new merch. We have new merch. We have new merch. It's our new uh, logo, mostly. Uh, but I also did some little tweaks to our tarot card design. I think it's a little bit cuter now. And I also did a, a revamp of our Mothman retro design. <laughs> uh, it's growing on me. 
But yeah, so if you say it may be time for a tote bag, (laughs) the tote bag is pretty cool. Um, It's on like a natural colored fabric, so it's very crunchy looking. Um, So yeah, we have new merch. You can find a link to that on our website, which is getafternoonified.com. We are on Instagram and Twitter at Afternoonified. Uh, You can email us at afternoonifiedpod at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, concerns. Now, concerns, keep those to yourself. Um, (laughs) Or episode recommendations. Always looking for topics. Let's see. Remember to rate, subscribe, review, and all of that. And we'll see you next week for a mini and the week after that for the part two of our Marie Antoinette series. The stunning conclusion to our two-part episode. Our two-part series. It's a British We're series. We're like real podcasters now. We do episodes in two parts. Maybe someday I'll, <laughs> I'll write notes. About, I, I didn't even occur to me that that was a thing that I could do with the daughter party. I'm just sitting there like I have to keep this to an hour. I could have read all of Patrick Breen's journal for you guys if I had done two parts. Just verbatim. Sure. Oh, it was boring. Um, all right, guys. Goodbye. Goodbye. We love you. For more podcasts like the one you just listened to, go to SoBelowMedia.com. This, this is As Above, So Below.